Team orders is a topic that has been a huge point of contention for decades. By and large, they are not popular, both with the drivers involved, well, one of them at least, and most certainly with the fans watching in the grandstands and on TV. But sometimes they are unavoidable and even understandable in certain circumstances. With so much at stake, sometimes teams just have to do what they have to do. Sometimes a team order could make the difference between millions and millions of dollars and, well, nothing. Formula One is a business after all and money talks. But fans want one thing and one thing only and that is racing. Good, hard, fair racing. And team orders are often implemented to prevent this. They make a race as simple and as stress-free as possible for a team and its drivers. And it's that reason that makes team orders as unpopular a concept as it is. And following the controversy, following Mercedes' use of team orders at the 2018 Russian Grand Prix, I figured it was the right time to discuss the race which featured perhaps the most controversial, ham-handed and downright disgusting use of team orders in Formula 1 history. I'm Rob Manifield and welcome to F1 Everything. Episode 10, Austria, 2002. The 2002 Formula 1 season, as I'm sure many of you know, was totally dominated by Ferrari and by Michael Schumacher. By the sixth round in Austria at the E1 ring, now known as the Red Bull ring, Michael had won four of the opening five races, with his only non-race win being at the second round in Malaysia where he recovered to third place after an opening lap collision with title rival Montoya that dropped him to the back of the field. By Austria, Michael had a 21 point lead in the standings over Montoya. That doesn't sound like much by today's standards where there's 25 points up for grabs for a win, but in 2002 a victory would only give you 10 points, with 6 points being awarded for 2nd, 4 for 3rd, 3 for 4th, 2 for 5th and 1 point for 6th. Every point really counted, as there were so few up for grabs. So 21 points was actually quite handy. And the season was only 17 races long compared to 21 in 2018. So Michael had the equivalent of two race wins in his pocket over Montoya. And even that would leave the Colombian still one point behind Schumacher in the standings. He was already comfortably in front at this stage in the season. A race win, whilst obviously desirable, wasn't crucial to his championship challenge. But Ferrari had a goal. In 2001, Michael wrapped the title up in the summer with four races to spare, and Ferrari wanted to do the same thing, maybe even sooner if possible. And despite their car, and the F2 W2 being considerably better than any other car on the grid, Ferrari wanted their number one driver to win at every race possible to maximise their chances. However, one thing they hadn't counted on was Rubens Barrichello in the second Ferrari being considerably faster than his four-time world champion teammate around the A1 ring that weekend. It's fair to say that in their time as teammates, Rubens Barrichello had the measure of his teammate at the Austrian Grand Prix. 
In 2000, Michael crashed out on the opening lap, leaving Rubens the sole remaining Ferrari and he secured a third place behind the two McLarens. In 2001, Rubens had overtaken his teammate after Michael got on into an on-track altercation with Montoya, leaving him off the track. Coulthard, Schumacher's main title rival, was leading and he would eventually go on to win the race. Barrichello was second and Schumacher was third. Michael had an 8 point lead heading into that race and with no chance of winning, he was about to have that lead whittled down to just 2 points. With this in mind, Jean Todt made a decision that would prove unpopular, but all in all, it was understandable and somewhat sensible. On the final lap of the race, as Coulthard crossed the line to take victory, Rubens slowed and he let Michael through to second, leaving the Brazilian down in third. Rubens wasn't in the title fight, Michael was, and with DC winning the title fight, winning the race the title fight was now much closer. Michael now had 4 points in hand over Coulthard, and he went on an impressive run of form, which would eventually lead to him winning the championship at the Hungarian Grand Prix in the summer. Austria would prove to be Coulthard's last win of the season, and his decent run of form would slowly start to slip away. So you might say, why did Rubens have to move over? Well, hindsight is a wonderful thing, and now we know that Michael would go on to dominate proceedings. Well, it's easy to say now, isn't it? But at the time, it was a smart decision by Ferrari. After all, how are they to know what was about to happen? You could say the same about the events at Austria a year later. The problem is, and we'll get to this, Ferrari went about the whole situation in the worst possible way. And that's where the understanding ends and the anger begins, as far as I'm concerned. At the start of the weekend, rather ironically, Rubens was asked during a press conference about the possibility of him leading the race this time and being asked to move aside for Michael to win. Rubens replied by saying, I don't like to read too much into the future. We'll wait until Sunday and then we'll see what's going to happen. In life, if we get worried about too many things, we're burning energy and it's not worth it. Let's wait until Sunday and see. Despite Rubens telling the press that he wasn't going to worry about it, you can clearly tell that there was something in the back of his mind even then. I interpret him saying, let's wait until Sunday and see, as almost an admission in a way that he knew something funny was about to happen to him. What an awful position to be in as a driver. Going into a race weekend knowing full well that you weren't going to be allowed to win. But Rubens didn't let that potential fear, if any at all, stop him from being super quick around the A1 ring. A strange little circuit, a combination of straights and medium speed corners with one particularly nasty hairpin turn. And a decent lap would see you clock in at around 70 seconds and Barrichello was truly dialed in. He qualified on pole position for the second time that year, with a time of 1 minute 8.082, just shy of three temps quicker than second placed Ralph Schumacher in the Williams, and more than six temps faster than his world champion teammate Michael. Six temps is a lot, especially over someone as good as Schumacher. Rubens was the man to beat, Oh, and before we move on, a little side note about Ralph Schumacher heading into the race. Though it has nothing to do with his driving. His hairstyle. It was quite something. 
That was one bright shade of blonde he had in his hair. Ralph described his barber having made a mistake. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Go and look it up, it is quite something. On race day, Rubens pulled into his grid slot and was buzzing to get things going. Turn 1 in Austria was a difficult corner to get through without incident, even in 2018, so being on pole gave him the best chance of making it through without damage. As the lights went out, both Rubens and Michael made excellent starts, and by turn 1, Michael had jumped his brother for second. Into turn 1, the only driver racing at the sharp end to come out of it badly was Sauber's Felipe Massa, who was forced wide by Kimi Raikkonen in the McLaren, the former having qualified a career-best 7th on the grid in his debut season with Sauber. The Ferraris sprinted away up the hill towards the chaotic turn 2 hairpin, and Ralph Schumacher's miserable first lap continued to get worse, as Nick Heidfeld and the other Sauber outbraked him and took 3rd place. Further down the order, Jacques Villeneuve and the BAR Honda decided to dive-bomb down the inside of Frentzen in the Arrows, making hefty contact with the German. In 2018, it would probably result in a stop-go penalty and some penalty points on your license. In 2002, however, it was 14th place. Frentzen, however, was left recovering his way out of one of the A1 ring's many gravel traps. Villeneuve would go on to make a move on Trulli's Renault for 13th just before reaching Raikkonen's now broken down and smoking McLaren Mercedes, which had parked up on the side of the track on lap 5, his fourth retirement from six starts that season. The two Ferraris, however, stretched their legs out front, with Barrichello leading Schumacher. The race would quieten down a little bit, and then on lap 22, it woke up again. It saw Olivier Panis in the other BAR Honda retire spectacularly on the pit straight, as his Honda engine expired. Panis fought to remain in control of the car and did well to keep it out of the barrier, but he would eventually spin the BAR Honda, now flaming with flames from the back just before turn one. The car was left stationary in the centre of the circuit, and the safety car was called upon. Barrichello would take advantage, and he pitted for the first time, with his teammate Schumacher queuing behind him. The Ferrari mechanics did an expert job of double-stacking their cars, and got them both out in quick succession. Through this, however, Rubens had managed to retain the lead, but Michael was now third behind Ralph Schumacher. On the restart, Rubens led the Williams and his teammate up towards Turn 2. Montoya was fourth, and Heifelt was fifth. However, under braking for the hairpin, Heifelt lost control of his Sauber. He spun out of control and slammed horrifically into the side of Takuma Sato in the Jordan. The Japanese driver was minding his own business whilst being lapped by Montoya. Heifelt came rocketing in at almost full speed, close to 200 miles an hour, and he absolutely destroyed the near stationary Jordan, as Sato had rounded the hairpin turn and was going extremely slowly. Montoya somehow avoided the incident by mere inches. He was incredibly lucky not to be taken out as well. Debris was everywhere. Both cars were destroyed, and the whole pit lane were in shock. Heads in hands, mouths wide open, eyes full of fear. It was one of the nastiest shunts of the modern era. Sato couldn't have done anything. He was completely blindsided. 
The impact was so heavy that it punched a hole in the side of the cockpit. Heifelt was merely too eager on the brakes and lost control. The Jordan team radioed in to Sato asking if he was okay, but he didn't reply, only making the situation feel even worse. The safety car was naturally brought out again, and the field filed behind it once more. Heidfeld was helped from his battered Sauber and carried away from the scene of the accident by two marshals. He was luckily only to receive bruising from the shunt. Sato, however, was trapped in the wreckage, and it took several minutes for the marshals to cut him free. He was loaded into, back, into the back of an ambulance and taken to hospital. Thankfully, however, he wasn't seriously injured, and he would be back on the grid at the next race in Monaco. If you haven't seen this shunt before, go and watch it. It's a testament to the strength of F1 cars even back then that Sato wasn't seriously hurt. Ten years prior, that could have been a fatal crash. Once the debris had been cleared, the safety car peeled in again and the race resumed, Rubens leading the way. As the race carried on, it was Ferrari, Williams, Ferrari, Williams top four, with Villeneuve now fifth after overtaking Coulthard. He was having a storming race. The front runners all started to pit for the second time and Rubens stayed ahead of his teammate. Villeneuve, however, saw his BAR Honda explode on the penultimate lap. A superb performance from the French Canadian had quite literally gone up in smoke. However, all attention was about to switch to the two Ferraris up front for all the wrong reasons. In the closing stages of the race, Michael started upping the pace. On lap 68, with only three to go, he would set the fastest lap of the race. Come the final lap, he was right behind his teammate. However, the real activity was about to take place on the Ferrari pit wall. People began to get anxious. Were Ferrari about to pull the same trick as last year? Were they about to make Rubens pull aside again? As the two cars rounded the A1 ring one last time, Michael got closer and closer. As they climbed the hill towards the final two corners, Michael was right there. Rubens was practically crawling. The commentators held their breath, desperate to see Rubens keep the win he so deserved. He had driven flawlessly. Through the final corner, Rubens was still ahead, but now he was almost at a standstill. And then, to everyone's horror, Barrichello slowly, sadly, reluctantly allowed his teammate through to win the 2002 Austrian Grand Prix. Less than two tenths of a second separated the two. And straight away, the fans turned angry. Loud jeers, boos and catcalls rang out throughout the beautiful A1 ring. The sound of disdain and fury could be heard everywhere. Michael reluctantly waved to the crowd on the slowdown lap, but there was nothing he could do to calm the crowd. They were utterly livid. Through team orders, they were robbed of the rightful winner. Todd had told Barrichello to let Michael through on the pit straight before the line, and Rubens, having signed a new contract at Ferrari, had no choice but to do as he was told. 
He held doing the deed off as long as possible, and they quite literally switched over the line. The top three parked in Park Ferme, and the boos and jeers were so loud, they practically stunned the two Ferrari drivers. Michael looked so embarrassed as he consoled his teammate, and things would go on to get even more awkward. There was a small matter of the podium ceremony to deal with, something that normally is a celebratory moment where drivers get to celebrate their success in front of their the adoring fans. This time, it felt more like a public shaming. The drivers came out and the boos intensified even more. The German flag was raised above the winner's step for Schumacher. However, Michael, in a desperate attempt to try and calm down the crowd, insisted that Barrichello stand on the top step. The German national anthem blared out around the circuit, with a heartbroken Brazilian stood on the winner's step and an embarrassed German standing on the second step. It's quite the sight and the FIA weren't pleased. As the Italian national anthem followed for Ferrari, both Michael and Rubens stood on the top step together this time. Again, the FIA weren't happy about this and they were about to be even more pissed off. After being presented the winner's trophy, Michael swiftly passed it to Barrichello and forced him to celebrate on the top step like he'd won the race. He thought he was doing the right thing. But all he did was anger more people. It was almost too little too late. The FIA were absolutely furious with this. Michael, Rubens and Ferrari had essentially made a mockery of the podium ceremony. And after appearing at the FIA World Motorsports Council a month later, they were collectively fined one million US dollars at the FIA World Motorsport Council. And they deserve it. This was due to failing to comply with Article 170 of the sporting regulations regarding the podium ceremony. The rule is essentially stand in the right place and don't be an idiot. Michael and Rubens had failed to do this. The FIA also expressed their anger at the way team orders had been issued and the way they were executed by Ferrari. The whole situation was just ridiculous, so avoidable, so clumsily handled by Ferrari, and this was just the beginning of the backlash. Ross Braun was swarmed upon by the world's media immediately following the chequered flag. ITV's Ted Kravitz asked him, Ross, Rubens had won that race, hadn't he? Ross replied with the following, Oh yes, Rubens had won the race today, but in the interest of Ferrari and the Drivers' Championship, we've made the decision. And whilst I personally do not agree with the way Ferrari went about it, you can see where they were coming from. Michael had another 10 points in the bag. Six more than title rival Montoya, who had finished third in the race. Prior to the race, Michael had a 21-point lead over the Williams driver. Following his, this result, Michael now had a 27-point lead, nearly three whole race wins in hand over the Williams. With only 10 points on offer for the winner of each race, nearly 30 points was a gigantic 
gigantic advantage, especially being so soon into the season. Without those additional 4 points, the gap is only 23 points, just over 2 race wins in hand. And in Formula 1, anything can happen in the blink of an eye. As much as it sucked, Ferrari had a world title to win, and they did what they had to do to ensure they won it. It turns out, in hindsight, that Michael really didn't need those 4 extra points as he wrapped the title up with 6 races to spare this time in the summer. However, Ross Braun has since said the whole incident was a big mistake, and he's right. For the sake of four points, Ferrari brought the sport of F1 into disrepute. They had embarrassed the sport. The integrity of the sport had been brought into question. After leading close to every lap of the race, Barrichello was denied the victory due to shady tactics by forces outside of the cockpit. Jean Todt, in this instance, was the ultimate puppet master manipulating his drivers into place. And Rubens has reportedly said since that his career at Ferrari had been threatened if he didn't move aside, that they would quite simply end his racing career if he didn't do as he was told. Now whilst there aren't too many reliable sources to confirm this, knowing Ferrari's shady practices, especially around that time, I personally believe it. Some people have asked why didn't Rubens simply ignore his team? Quite simply, Rubens didn't have a choice. His hands were tied. He said post-race, What shall I do? It's in my contract that I have to obey orders. And what about Michael? Why didn't Michael ignore his team's orders? Well, like Rubens, he had an order from the pit wall to go by. And also, the order benefited him. Why wouldn't he go by if he was told to do so, even if he knew deep down it wasn't the right thing? If you listening were fighting for an F1 World Championship, with all the pressure that comes from that, and your team is essentially gifting you four free points at a time where points were so precious, would you not take them? What if those four points were the main difference between winning a World Championship and, well, coming second? Hindsight is a wonderful thing of course, like I said, Michael didn't need those points in the end. But quite honestly, and please don't kill me for saying this, Ferrari did the smart thing here. Wrapping the title up at the 11th round of 17 shows as much. In the post-race press conference, the media booed the drivers, and Michael, embarrassed, gave the following quote. It wasn't a long preparation or discussion. They came on in the last couple of metres on the radio and said he would back off. I have to be honest to say now that it was probably the wrong decision to win this race. Yes, I agree. If I had the chance to turn it around, I would probably do, but I cannot now. Someone then sarcastically applauded him in the background. It was clear that anything Michael, Rubens and Ferrari were going to say was going to cause the fans and the media to roll their eyes. No one was going to believe them. And the matter was still a huge topic of conversation at Monaco a couple of weeks later, as you would expect. Though several people defended Ferrari's decision, Ralph Schumacher most notably. People understood. But on the whole, the whole situation left everyone feeling so cold, so sour, and believe it or not, 
this wouldn't be the last time Ferrari made a mockery of a race finish that season. At the 2002 US Grand Prix at Indianapolis, Michael led the race from start to finish with his teammate Rubens in second. They had dominated proceedings as normal. As the two drivers rounded the final corner, the banked turn 13 that I've mentioned in a previous episode, episode 7 to be exact, go and check it out, they drove line astern, side by side. The two drivers were attempting to stage a dead heat finish, and they failed. And having the whole led the whole race, Michael was beaten over the line by Barrichello by 0.011 of a second. 11 one-thousandths of a second. To this day, it's one of the closest finishes in F1 history. The two drivers played it as if Michael had returned the favour, if you will, from Austria. Though I don't think that really was Michael's intention. He and Rubens wanted to make a statement. That they could stage a photo finish and still not be touched by the competitors. All they did was confuse the fans and anger the FIA even more. This incident along with the team orders in Austria, resulted the FIA banning team orders in F1 from the 2003 season onwards. They wouldn't return until the 2011 season, following Ferrari's stunt at the 2010 German Grand Prix. You know, the Fernando is faster than you incident. The FIA knew team orders were difficult to police, and everyone knew that all the teams still enforced them in their own sneaky ways. But in 2002, Ferrari had stretched their justifiable usage too far. Other teams had used them prior and after the incident. In fact, every team has used them over the years. Felipe Massa, for example, in 2002, was rudely told to move aside for a teammate Heitfeldt in Germany. It was very abrupt, and I can understand Massa being upset by it. Another example. Eddie Jordan implemented team orders at the 1998 Belgium Grand Prix, the one I covered in episode 3 of the podcast, to ensure his two drivers finished first and second in horrific conditions. It wasn't nice for Raul Schumacher, who was forced to stay behind teammate Damon Hill, but George got their first win that day. Imagine if they didn't use team orders and Ralph locks a break and takes himself and Damon out everyone would be laughing at Eddie Jordan for not using team orders. That was an understandable team order. Not nice, but understandable. And most recently, at the 2010 Russian Grand Prix, Bottas took pole and was leading his teammate Lewis Hamilton. But Mercedes instructed Bottas to move aside for his teammate. People weren't happy, and Hamilton's victory was a shallow one. It was an understandable team order. And with the title battle between himself and Vettel still very much alive, Mercedes was smart to make that call to let Hamilton win, even if it upset people. As much as team orders may take away from the racing from time to time, at the end of the day, Formula One is a team sport. There's a lot of money at stake. Every point matters. And at the 2018 Russian Grand Prix, Mercedes did the right thing at the end of the day. They could have gone about the whole thing a bit better, but it resulted in Lewis winning the 2018 world title with two races to spare. But none of the examples I have given were handled as poorly 
as Austria 2002. The incident in Austria was so avoidable and messy. There's a way to go about team orders to benefit your team. Forcing your driver to move aside mere metres from the finish line is not the way to do it. I personally think team orders are okay within reason. With as much money as there is at stake, where the margins between victory and defeat are so, so small, anything a team can do to help their cause must be considered fine, providing they're done with decency and with respect. Ferrari didn't do that in Austria. Quite frankly, they took the piss out of F1. And Ferrari won't be allowed to forget this incident. 16 years later, it still hangs above them like a black cloud, even at the slightest hint of team orders within the team. And rightfully so. It remains the most controversial piece of team orders in Formula 1 history. It was disgusting. It's going to take something truly rotten to top it. And I really hope it doesn't happen for everyone's sake. This episode of F1 Everything was written and created by me, Rob. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave a rating and a review and share with your friends. Also be sure to follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I also host a side podcast called the Michael Schumacher Podcast, the first episode of which was based on the amazing drive by Michael at the 1996 Spanish Grand Prix. Again, be sure to check it out on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow the show on all the social medias like this one. Once again, thank you for listening. I know it's been a while since I last done a numbered episode. Life has been crazy, but I really appreciate your patience and I hope you stick around for what's coming up. I'm Rob Manifield, and I'll see you around the next corner.